In order to support our show, we need the help of some great advertisers. And we want to make sure those advertisers are ones you'll actually want to hear about. But we need to learn a little more about you to make that possible. So go to podsurvey.com slash artofman and take a quick anonymous survey that will help us get to know you better. That way, we can bring on advertisers you won't want to skip. Once you've completed the quick survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash artofman, A-R-T-O-F-M-A-N, podsurvey.com slash artofman. Thanks for your help. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Now, when many people think of the American involvement in World War II, it likely brings to mind the 101st Airborne Division and their heroics at Normandy. But there was another American infantry division that invaded Sicily and then fought a year in Europe before the 101st even showed up. All in all, these soldiers saw over 500 days of combat. They were the Thunderbirds of the 45th Infantry Division, and my guest today has written a captivating history of these oft-forgotten warriors. His name is Alex Kershaw, and he's written several books on World War II, the book we discussed today is called The Liberator. Alex begins by sharing what made the 45th different from other infantry divisions and discusses why they're often overlooked by people. He then talks about a colonel from Arizona named Felix Sparks, who always led from the front and fought side by side with his men over two years. We get into some of the major battles the 45th encountered and their liberation of the Dachau concentration camp. Alex ends our conversation with a call to all of us to reach out to a World War II vet before they disappear from our ranks forever. After the show's over, check out the show notes at aom.is liberator. Alex Kershaw, welcome to the show. Great to be with you. So you've made a career for yourself writing uh, books about World War II. Curious, when did that get started and what led you to that particular topic? Uh, well, I've been a journalist really um, all my since my early 20s, and I have to say I'm a 51 now, so it's been quite a while, 30 years almost. In my early 20s, I did a, uh, an investigative story, quite a long story, took several months about the Channel Islands in the English Channel. They were the only part of Britain that was occupied by the Nazis. And I realized when I was doing the story that, number one, it was very, very enjoyable. Um, I loved being a journalist, especially an investigative journalist. But also, I loved writing about World War II. And this was back in the 90s, where there were, when there were a lot of people, obviously, a lot of the, the people that had fought in World War II or lived through it was still in their 70s. And so I, I really got a buzz out of it. I really loved writing the story. And I, I, I realized that I'd always been fascinated by World War II. Both my grandfathers were in World War II. It's the best story of our time. There's no greater story, I believe, if you're certainly if you're an American. And uh, I was like, why would I want to write about anything else? These, uh, these warriors are still amongst us. These giants among pygmies are still amongst us. And while they're still alive, why not interview them? Why not tell stories about this wonderful period? Why not? Um, it just uh, Everything else didn't seem to come close in terms of drama and, and emotional interest for me. I, um, so I, I, uh, I had the opportunity when I was in my early 30s to write a biography of World War II's greatest combat photographer. That's Robert Kappa, um, an absolute legend. And while I was researching and writing that book, I uh, came across the story of the Bedford Boys, which is the story of 19 young men who were killed on D-Day in the first wave. The movie Saving Private Ryan is, is based on a few elements of my narrative, or whether I should say that Saving Private Ryan recreates what happened on Omaha Beach where my guys died. So anyway, that was in my early, thir- my early 30s, and 
I've been extremely fortunate. Touch wood. I'm, I'm actually touching my forehead right now. You know, I've been I've been very, very, very lucky indeed to be able to spend the uh, last couple of decades writing about uh, amazing people and writing about a period that is just something that I have always been fascinated by. And I've, I've, I mean, I've, it's it's been wonderful. That's that's fantastic. Well, the book I, I'd like to talk about in particular today is one called The Liberator. And right. it's about the 45th Infantry Division in World War II. And it's a division, you know, as we'll see, played a huge role in World War II, but doesn't get a lot of attention or credit, I would say. No. But, but to start off, like, what made the 45th different from other divisions in the Army? Um, I think there's only one, uh, one major difference, and it's an important one, because it really goes to the heart of what that division was about. And that's that the 45th Infantry Division, nicknamed the Thunderbird Division, because they had a shoulder patch, a, a beautiful soft, soft felt Thunderbird patch on their shoulders. Uh, that division had more Native Americans among its ranks. So I think, you know, a full combat division is around about 14,000, 15,000 guys. Around about seven, 8,000 will actually see uh, combat. But in that division, when it left the U.S., to go to Europe in World War II, there were over 1,500 Native Americans. And those Native Americans were drawn from predominantly the West, Oklahoma, Colorado, New Mexico, those areas. And so I think that, you know, at the heart of that division, you had this, I mean, you can't get much more quintessentially American than, than uh, 1,500 Braves, and I would definitely call them Braves, uh, going over and to Europe and fighting um, and being very proud of their, their heritage and their and, and their status as uh, as the original Americans. And you know, part of that Native American heritage, I thought there was an interesting story too, sort of an interesting tidbit. So their insignia was the Thunderbird, so it's like a Native American Thunderbird. But before that, it was something completely different. Can you tell us a little about that and and what happened? Oh yeah, no, it's, uh, it's actually quite it's actually quite an amazing story because. Up until I think it was 1938, whenever, uh, you know, Memorial Day or whenever these guys paraded from the 45th Division in any small town in America, if you can imagine this, they had a swastika as their shoulder patch. So you'd be, <laughs> this is 1938, and you'd have these Americans marching in uniform proudly with a swastika on their shoulder. <laughs> so what happened was that people realized that this might not be a very good thing in combat. And actually, it was in the late 30s anyway that they decided to change it. Uh, change the swastika and and put a thunderbird patch on the shoulder. Now the thunderbird is uh, a symbol that's not just special to some Native Americans. It's also throughout history been uh, very symbolic, um, going back hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. But it's uh, the um, two important things to say about that that thunderbird image. The thunderbird represents a kind of a very potent force. It's a force for good if it's harnessed in the right way, if directed in the right way. And it can be an avenging force. It can be a, a very, very powerful and destructive force also when applied against the appropriate enemy. So I was always very taken by this idea that we had these, this, uh, these Native Americans fighting alongside recent generations of immigrants in America against the ultimate evil of the 20th century, which was Nazism. I mean, some people might say Stalinism was just as bad and communism under Mayo, but as a European, I'm a European, you can tell from my accent, I don't think there was a, a greater evil than, 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 than Nazism. And it was very important to me as a storyteller, and I think it's very important for 
those who appreciate the sacrifice of ordinary working-class Americans in World War II to, to think that those guys, um, and some of them were, were Native Americans, those guys liberated Dachau, the, the, the Nazis' first concentration camp in April 1945. So you have these guys with this very potent symbol on their shoulder, these Avengers, these citizen soldiers for America, entering, liberating, and actually saving thousands of victims of, of Nazism right at the end of the war. So this is an interesting um, uh, contrast. So you have this division where there's a lot of Native Americans fighting Nazis who look down upon Native Americans as less than. How did that idea that the Nazis were fighting Native Americans and other, you know, I'm sure there's uh, Hispanic Americans in there as well. How did that color the Nazis' perceptions of the Thunderbird? They think like, oh yeah, these guys are just going to be a cakewalk to beat because we're the superior race. What what was, do you have any insight from there? Yeah, actually I came across a, um, a quote from a, a German German general. Uh, I think it was um, in uh, when the Thunderbirds fought in Italy. They, they fought from the 10th of July, 1943, right to the end of the war. So they, um, every day that Americans fought and died to liberate Europe, the Thunderbirds were, were there. Um, I think it's 511 days in combat um, overall. If you contrast that with the famous band of brothers, the 101st Airborne, I think the 101st Airborne were on the line, able to get shot up about for about 117 days. So it just shows you just how how uh, you know, the 101st Airborne did not win, win World War II. Bandler Brothers, those guys, could not win the World War II, certainly from the American point of view, as, as much as anything else. But anyway, the Germans were the victims uh, of enormous propaganda. I mean, Goebbels, the propaganda supremo, um, was a very, very sophisticated, actually a very, very intelligent man and did everything within his power to try and convince uh, all Germans, German soldiers, German civilians, that this was a, a just war and that they should fight to the very, very bitter end, to the last man in, in many cases. And uh, he was um, very adept at, uh, at convincing ordinary Germans that the enemy were half-breeds, that they were made up of gangsters and uh, and half-breeds, um, that the American fighting forces were were weaker because they were they were not pure Aryans, they were not they were not pure. Teutonic warriors like the German forces. Um, in fact, you could argue that the very strength of the American forces was their diversity. I mean, I would argue that the, the greatest strength of, of, of American society is, is its diversity and always has been. It's, a, it's the ultimate immigrant culture and it should always be that, that way. But anyway, um, they, were, they were very condescending and, and had a lot of hubris when they went into combat. I think the perfect example of this is the Battle of the Bulge where the Germans were convinced that they were fighting an inferior enemy and um, in December 1944 they were given a very profound psychological shock when they realized that they were not fighting an inferior enemy, that actually these half-breeds would stand and hold and, and fight, all, in some cases, to the last bullet. They were very, very fierce warriors indeed in some cases. And it had a big, a big profound effect in January of 1945 on the ordinary German soldier. They'd been told that they were up against an inferior enemy and to discover that that enemy was not inferior, but in some cases awesomely uh, fierce and, 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 and stubborn. That had a, a big effect on the ordinary German in, in, in the Wehrmacht in early 1945 when there was a, a, they, they lost heart in many cases. So you mentioned earlier that the 45th spent over 500 days fighting, the 101st, a little over 100, 100 days, yet 
as we talked about earlier, the 45th doesn't really get a lot of recognition. Yeah, no, I think the broader point is that most people who know a little bit about World War II know a lot about D-Day, June the 6th, 1944. Uh, they know something about the Pacific Pearl Harbor, the dropping of the atomic bomb, etc. But I think what a lot of people don't realize is that Americans started to fight and die in the European theater in November of 1942. So we're, we're actually about 75 years, almost to the day, from the moment when Americans started to lay down their lives to restore democracy and human rights in Europe. Operation Torch, November 1942, the invasion of Sicily, which is actually the greatest amphibious invasion of the war in terms of American men uh, sent into enemy territory, over 200,000 Allied soldiers in the invasion of Sicily in July 1943. Salerno, uh, that's mainland Italy, that's September 1943, a very, very, very difficult battle indeed. We almost had our backsides handed to us and were thrown back into the Mediterranean. Then you have Anzio, January 1944. Um, again, a very, very, very difficult, bloody affair. Uh, and that's, Anzio is January 1944. And then you have June 1944, which is the one and only D-Day, the, 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 the invasion that everybody remembers. So the Americans were involved in several amphibious invasions before D-Day, before the 101st Airborne, went into, went into action. Let's not forget that June the 6th, 1944, the day of days, was the first time that the 101st Airborne saw action in World War II. So from July 1943, right until June of 19... Sorry, July of 19... Yeah, July 1943, right through till June of 1944. And that's an awful long time. That's almost a, a year of combat when Americans were engaged in Sicily and Italy uh, in very, very difficult fighting, very, very, very hard battles, very hard fighting, and it's been forgotten about. Um, the, uh, I was in the uh, Anzio Latuno graveyard um, just, just a few weeks ago, seven and a half thousand Americans buried there. Uh, I was there on a beautiful fall day, and I think there were only three other people in the graveyard. Now, about a week later, I went to the graveyard above Omaha Beach, uh, Colville Sumer, and there were hundreds of people in the graveyard. So the Italian campaign, Sicily, the Italian campaign, has been rightly called the Forgotten War, and yet it was probably the, the hardest fighting that, that Americans were involved in, in in Europe in World War II. So um, we'll get into some of these specific battles, especially on Anzio, because that was you know that was one of my favorite sections. Just the, the writing was fantastic. But uh, one character you followed throughout this campaign of the 45th all the way from Sicily to Germany is a guy named Felix Sparks. What's his story and you know what was his role as a commander or a leader in the 45th? Well, he, uh, he started off as um, uh, a, uh, a captain. He was a, a, became a company, he became a company commander at the end of the Sicilian campaign. He landed on the 10th of July 1943. He was a, uh, in the executive office of that company, Company E of the 157th Infantry Regiment of the 45th Infantry Division. It was his, his job to keep records, to make sure that people got the right medal recommendations. It was, rather, it was, a, it was a, a desk role, and he hated it. Um, and he actually demanded that he be given a leadership role, that he wanted to lead men in combat. And he got his wish. So from the September of 1943, with the invasion of Salerno, he was a company commander. He, he uh, remained a company commander right through until the summer, of, uh, actually the, the uh, early summer of 1944, became a battalion commander and, and, and was a, a perfect example of the kind of meritocracy that you get in, in the U.S. military and certainly during combat. 
that if you're good enough and you can stay alive, you'll be promoted if you get the job done. And he, he was really, really very good at getting the job done. He would, he would be given very difficult tasks and would, would carry them out. He, was, he loved being a company commander, most of all, because that's about 200 guys. Now, with 200 guys, if you command 200 guys, you can get to know each one. You can get to know their family, who their families are. You can, you can form a personal bond uh, with each of the men that you lead in combat. And he loved that. He, he said to me when I interviewed him for the book that that was the, the greatest job he ever had was to be a company commander, a, a captain of a company in combat. So he, he, he fought all the way through, fought through, fought through Sicily, Italy, southern France, all the way up the Rhone Valley into Germany, and then was the commanding officer, the American commanding officer of the first Americans to enter and liberate Dachau concentration camp in April of 1945. So in terms of an epic odyssey. I mean, a, a really long journey, um, almost 2,000 miles, um, 1,500, over 1,500 guys under his direct command that took orders from him in the battlefield were killed uh, during this time in combat. He was on the line in Europe for over 500 days of fighting. Just an amazing story. I mean, he said it was a miracle that he survived, that he often, I say that I would use the word often, not lightly, that there were many times when he thought that he wouldn't make it, that um, he, was, he would almost certainly be killed. Um, an extraordinary story of a, of a working-class American that grew up in the Depression, that was given nothing, that had to earn everything he got in life through hard work and risk-taking, that led men very, very superlatively well in, in combat. And I, I couldn't find, when I was researching the story, in, in the 20 years that I've been writing about Americans in combat in Europe, I couldn't find a better example of someone that, that was more respected and, uh, and, and tougher and, and uh, more admirable in terms of their of anybody that I've interviewed, and I've interviewed a lot of really extraordinary uh, combat leaders. So let's get into some of the specific battles that the 45th encountered, the Thunderbirds encountered. And we talked about Anzio. This was in Italy, correct? Yeah, it's just about, it's about uh, 60 miles south of, south of Rome on the coast. The idea for Anzio was that the Allies had been blocked by the Germans. The Germans were absolutely uh, really, really fantastic at defensive warfare. And if you look at a map of Italy, You'll notice that it's just basically uh, two-thirds of the country from the from uh, the tip, the Mediterranean tip, uh, all the way up the, the boot of Italy. Uh, it's one mountain range after another. So what the Germans did was they just they they set up a defensive line. The Americans would always be on the attack. Uh, they'd kill a lot of Americans, and then they'd retreat to the next mountain range, set up the defensive line. The Americans would attack, and so on. So it was a very very bloody and very difficult campaign for the Allies, and. Um, to, to try and end this campaign quickly and seize Rome, the, um, uh, the Allies came up with an idea that they would uh, launch an amphibious invasion, hop around, uh, do an end run around most of the, the mountain ranges in Italy and come in and, and attack it uh, toward Rome and land American forces at the closest point they could get to Rome, which was Anzio, Matuno. The two actually today, the rather pretty coastal you know, seaside towns in Italy. So they landed, um, they didn't land enough men. It was a botched operation from the start. Didn't have enough landing craft. Everything was done on a shoestring. The invasions, uh, the landing forces stalled. They didn't take certain objectives in time. Certainly, they didn't take uh, heights overlooking the plain of Anzio. And they were stalled there in a, in a deadly stalemate for about three months. Um, actually, it was the bloodiest 
campaign for the Allies in Europe. Over 70,000 Allied casualties. The British and Americans suffered terribly. The Germans counterattacked several times, tried to force the Allies back into the into the Mediterranean. It came very close in February of 1944 to actually destroying the Allied bridgehead. And in fact, it was Sparks's uh, division, in particular his regiment and his company, which which stopped the fiercest German uh, counterattack. And in that battle, which became known as the Battle of the Caves, um, Sparks's unit was surrounded for about 10 days. And uh, as a company commander, he fought that battle very fiercely. And tragically, he was the only guy from his company. So here you have a 25-year-old company commander, the only guy that, uh, that survived the battle. Um, he managed to get back to his own lines. But every other guy in his unit, in his company, E Company, were either captured, wounded, or killed, which was a devastating blow to him as a as a guy that had loved every guy that he led in that in that unit. And how did he move on? I mean, like he's like he had to move on. Like they had to keep going. So what? Did, yeah, I think. I mean, I think that one of the the, the things that I found I, I I couldn't understand. I think that none of us can really understand this. When you is is number one how you can last that long in that kind of combat. Um, I've never been in combat, thank God. And number two, how, how you can then move on when you've felt so responsible for young men's lives and when you lose those men, and when you lose all of your men that you're in command of. I, I, I know that it, 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 didn't, it didn't break him entirely, but I know that for the rest of his life he felt enormous survivor's guilt. Um, I think that he was, his heart was definitely broken. We know that we can, many of us can come back from a broken heart. It takes a long time. But the scars are always there. We all know that, that when you lose people you love, you, you, in many cases you can carry on, but you don't really ever get over it. And I, I don't think Sparks ever got over that. I don't think that he was the same person ever again. I think that it was, it was a deep, deep wound in him that lasted until his last days. I mean, I think that he, when, I, I, when I interviewed him, he was, it was six months before he died. He, he was 80, 89 years old. And... Uh, he still felt those wounds very, very, very much so. He felt an anger and a heartbreak and a, and a, and a deep, deep grief and loss. You, you know, over, you know, 70 years later, you, you can't lose 200 young men that fought for you, that would die for you and, and not feel anything but heartbreak. And, you know, the amazing thing about Sparks, what impressed me, like he led from the front. Yeah, and I think That was displayed, um, you know, when they went to France, there was a battle, uh, Ripeswiler, Ripeswiler? Yeah, Ripeswiler, yeah. Yeah, where he you know displayed some heroics and leading from the front, and it even impressed an SS soldier. Yeah, can you walk us a, a, a bit through that? Yeah, he it was in Reichswehr. It was at the end of January 19, uh, 1945, just on the German border, and the Germans counterattacked. They counterattacked at the Battle of the Bulge in in the mid December. Then they had an operation called Northwind, which hardly anybody knows about, which was yet another. Uh, attempt to push the, the Americans back at their borders. What you have to remember is that, you know, when we invaded Italy, when we invaded France uh, on D-Day, this is not German soil. This is not the, the Heimwehr. This is not the homeland. And, uh, you know, as I think everybody listening would recognize that, you know, if Americans are fighting in Mexico, they're not going to fight quite as hard as they would in uh, Los Angeles or Kentucky or, or New York State. You know, when it's your own country, it doesn't matter who, to some extent, it doesn't matter who your leaders are. It's, it's, it's your territory, it's your soil, it's your family that are on the line here now. So point being is that when we got to Germany and when Sparks got to Germany, the Germans, and in his case, unfortunately, the SS, who he respected enormously, um, 
they fought back viciously. And uh, his battalion, he was a battalion commander. They were surrounded by the, uh, the SS, uh, being picked off methodically, uh, very, very uh, savage warfare. And Sparks wanted to try and rescue some of his men. He commanded a jeep, uh, actually a tank, sorry. And he was seen by an SS machine gunner, a guy called Johann Voss, to jump off this tank and drag several of his wounded men to the tank and then, and then reverse down a mountain pass. And this is something that w- was unheard of, that, you know, a battalion commander, a lieutenant colonel, just didn't do things like this. It was, not, it was remarkable. And the, the SS guys that watched him do it, w- you know, they wouldn't hesitate to open fire most of the time. But this was so astonishing to them to see an officer risking his life in such a way to drag wounded guys to safety, that they didn't open fire, that they, they, they couldn't kill him. They just, it, was, it was something that was just a step too far. Um, and so, yeah, that was an example of, uh, it's a perfect example, it was the main example of, of Sparks, you know, putting his life on the line, risking his life. He told me that he, he, he broke, that he snapped, he just couldn't, he didn't care anymore. So the only thing that mattered to him was to save some of his men's lives. And, you know, he'd lost a, a company at Anzio in, in uh, February of 1944, this was almost a year later, and uh, he, he was haunted by the loss, and uh, he said that I didn't care. I mean, I, 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 I wouldn't have cared less. I, I, all, all that mattered to me was that I would save some of my men. I wasn't going wasn't to see all those guys be lost again. I wasn't going to have that happen to me again without trying to do something about it. And uh, he, um, he should have been, some people say that he should have been, he should have received the Medal of Honor. There, there was a campaign uh, back in the, um, you know, 15, 20 years ago to, to try and have him recognized uh, and, and, and receive the Medal of Honor for what, what was an extraordinary act of courage and selflessness um, and, and intrepidity, um, but he didn't receive it. And he didn't, didn't even receive the Distinguished Service Cross, which he was actually recommended for. Um, so yeah, it was, he was, a, it was an astonishing guy. And uh, the people that I met that served under him, the, the veterans I met at reunions worshiped him. They, uh, he was a god to them. He was someone that was uh, a father figure. He was someone that they they knew that one thing that Sparks would do every day, and that's what and that would be to try and keep as many of them alive as possible. You know, Sparks told me that his job was a, was a terrible, a terrible responsibility because every day he gave orders for his men to advance. Well, most days you have to remember that the American army were on the the attack throughout the European campaign. They weren't they weren't a defensive army. They were. They were invading, and they were the job. The job of Americans in World War II in Europe was to land in Europe and get to Berlin as fast as possible, and then go to the Pacific and finish off the Japanese. So it was just like every day, it, get up, attack, 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 and um, you take a lot of casualties when you do that. And if you're an officer, you're asking your men to attack German positions over and over and over again. And when you attack, you lose lives. And Sparks told me my job was to get people killed every day. And it was a good day if I got less guys killed than the day before. So you have an idea of the responsibility there. And, and you know, every, every loss of a life, uh, you know, affected him. Um, so, yeah, I mean, he, but he cared about his men and he cared about keeping as many of them alive as possible. And he thought it was his moral responsibility as a human being, not just as an officer, to actually accuse him of ask guys to get killed and to fight for their country and lay down their lives. She should lead them whenever possible into those situations where they could be killed. Um, there were a couple of occasions when, you know, I, um, I, interviewed, I interviewed veterans who said that they were astonished that suddenly down this street or out of nowhere would come walking this 
lieutenant colonel, you know, right near the front lines, and sometimes actually at the front lines. And uh, that, they, they were astonished. They didn't see anybody other the captain uh, anywhere near the real action for, for months on end, you know. But there was a, a joke among a lot of GIs that you never saw a senior, a senior uh, field commander anywhere near the real shit. Sorry, excuse my language. But, uh, but, but, but Sparks was there, you know. He, he, he was there. And that makes a massive difference. You know, if someone's giving you orders, when you see the guy that's giving you the orders right beside you, fighting beside you, taking the same risks, it, 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 it is a very, very effective motivational tool. You know? So they, they advanced from France into Germany. And as you said, they liberated the first concentration camp made in Germany, Dachau. Yeah, yeah. What, what did the men think? Like, I thought it was interesting how you did talk. Like, they didn't really know what it was when they first saw it. But how did they react once they realized what was going on there? Well, it was a combination. I mean, I think that uh, Spark said to me that the scenes that they encountered when they first entered the camp were, he said to me, beyond human comprehension. He said, this was nothing they could ever prepare you for this. And, you know, he said that they'd seen everything by then. You know, I mean, they'd seen anything you could possibly imagine as a combat, uh, a combat infantryment. I mean, just the, the worst of industrial warfare. I mean, civilians... Uh, civilians damaged, other men terribly damaged. I mean, you know, when, when, most Americans in, in the GIs on the ground in combat in, in the European theater were killed by flying hot shards of metal, uh, pieces of shrapnel, particularly from artillery shells. Uh, mortars were also very effective. So, you know, you would often not... When an artillery barrage occurred, it was probably the most lethal thing that could happen to you. Um, and there were cases where, you know, you're, you'd be next beside a really good buddy and it was the buddy beside you that you always fought for, not, you know, obviously people were very patriotic. They were fighting for the flag. They, they had a notion that they were, they were fighting for civilization and, and uh, to defeat barbarism, etc. But when it really came down to it, when you were really, really, when, you, when, the, when the SHIT hit the fan, it was really the guy beside you that you fought for. And that guy fought for you. And your greatest fear was not so much the enemy, but it was of letting the guy beside you down, of, of failing that, that person, that, that, that buddy, when, when you're, both your lives were on the line. So there were cases I came across where you'd be beside that person you were fighting for, and then you'd have pieces of that, that person splattered across you, across the, the stock of your M1 rifle, and they, they would be literally obliterated. So these are the things that really damaged people and that were uh, almost daily occurrences. But even that didn't compare to seeing thousands of, of, of people dead, rotting corpses. And this is what greeted the Thunderbirds when they arrived at Dakar on the 29th of April, 1945. The first thing they saw was a, a, what was called the death train. And this was a, a, a train of, a, a, of wagons full of over 2,000 dead corpses. These were people that had been put on a train for over two weeks from, Buchen, from Buchenwald. And uh, they'd been starved. They haven't been given water. Haven't hadn't been given water. And then when they got to Dachau, some of them had crawled out. Miraculously, some of them had survived, and some of them had crawled out. And then SS guards, as they crawled out of the train, had stomped on their heads and had used the, the butts of their rifles to break in their break their brains in. And um, so these these sort of things, when you saw this, and you had already been through, I think for some of these guys, it was their 500th day of of combat. So they were worn down, they were tired, they were brutalized, they were angry, they were on hair triggers anyway, ready to 
ready to explode. And when they saw this, uh, many of them were just absolutely enraged. And Sparks told me that he actually lost lost control of his men for a while. He, he couldn't he couldn't control them. He himself was was lost for a while. He was in a daze, and he, he, he vomited. And he it was it was something that was just really really beyond anything they could ever imagine. They were. And then you go through various stages of grief, of rage, of, of, of nausea, of being stunned. Many guys were in tears. Um, and then as they moved on into the camp, they were on the outskirts. Uh, when they moved on into the camp, they were, you know, there were 32,000 people in that concentration camp, Dachau, when it was liberated. Um, uh, first formed in 1933, so 12 years of death and being people being worked to death of evil and decay and and, and monstrosity, and believe it or not, some people in that camp on the 29th of April 1945 had been there for over a decade. They'd, they'd, they'd been in hell for that long. And so when um, when they got towards the very center of the uh, the Dachau complex, there were 32,000 people there, over 50 nationalities, Catholic priests, Jehovah's Witnesses, gays, mostly political prisoners. And when they heard the sound of combat when they heard that Sparks and his men were there uh, and when they saw uh, the green uniform of the uh, American soldier and they saw the helmets and they saw the Thunderbird patch, etc., there was what Sparks told me was like a, a chilling roar, 32,000 people roaring with pleasure and relief that finally their ordeal was over. And in fact, many of the, the people that were saved by Americans there um, they, they later on called the 29th of April 1945 the day on which Americans liberated the, the longest-standing um, center of evil within the Third Reich, the longest-standing concentration camp. They called that day the Day of the Americans um, because it was the Americans that had, had, had liberated them. And um, for some of them, it was the, the day that they were literally born again. They had thought that their lives would be over, that, that they had really gone to hell. And then to see these Americans give them a, a new chance at life was something that was profoundly, profoundly affecting and, you know, incredibly moving. So, you know, when we talk about cliches such as the greatest generation, my son's 19, I think that his generation is awesome too. Every generation is awesome. But when you talk about Americans, working class Americans, liberating Europe in World War II, you're talking about an episode which is really sacrosanct and beautiful and pure. It's a, an astonishing, astonishing achievement that Europeans will always be grateful for. Um, the liberation of that beautiful, beautiful historic place, of that continent that gave birth to the Enlightenment, to the Renaissance, that produced American waves of immigration, that produced America. Um, it, it, it's, a, it's an amazing thing that you have these young Americans going back to the old world and liberating it and, and, and liberating it from enormous evil, enormous, unimaginable evil and, and barbarism. Um, it's a great, I think it's the greatest achievement in American history. I think uh, the few of those liberators that are still alive are the greatest Americans in American history. I, 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 the longer I spend in Europe, and I spend a long time in Europe taking Americans every year through the World War II Museum, through tours I do with the museum, I, I go back several weeks every year and take places take Americans to the places where Americans died to liberate that great continent. I, I'm, I'm increasingly, every day I do it, every year that passes, uh, when I'm in the 50s now, I, I am more and more and more in awe 
of that sacrifice and that heroism and that courage and and the effects of that and the the beauty of of what was given to Europe and what was given to my generation of Europeans. It's a, it's a truly awesome, awesome achievement. Well, Alex, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about your work? It is, you can go to my website, www.alexkershaw.com. I have my books listed there and I'm on Twitter and Facebook and you name it. And I, I love interacting with people. So, uh, you know, please visit, please visit me and, and uh, hopefully enjoy you know, not just my stories, but but um, but other people's stories too. Because you know, these I, I was talking to a guy. I'll shut up soon. But I was talking to a guy yesterday who told me that the American the American government has officially declared that that the end of the the practical lives, the the lives that we can count on, people still being still still having a heartbeat uh, of of World War II veterans is 2020. So we're really, we are now only two years away from the date at which the American government has decided that for all intents and purposes, the World War II generation will be no more. So we're right at the end. We're very, we're at that, as the sun comes down, that last glimmer of light on the horizon, that's where we are in terms of, of uh, these amazing people in this. And uh, I think it's worth thinking about. It's worth really thinking about that because when when, they, when they're gone um, all we'll have is archives and history books Alex Kershaw thank you so much for your time it's been a pleasure thank you so much too my guest there is Alex Kershaw. He's the author of several books on World War II. The book we discussed today was The Liberator. It's available on Amazon.com. You can find out more information about Alex's work by going to his website, alexkershaw.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash liberator, where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. If you enjoy the podcast, I've gotten something out of it. I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. Helps out a lot. If you've already done that, thank you. Share the podcast with friends. That's how we get the word out about the show. As always, thank you for your continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. Stay manly.